Another busy day for the president. He's going to be hosting a whole list of executive orders there, including his plans for extreme vetting and temporarily halting the flow of refugees into the United States of America. We only want to admit those into our country who will support our country. That's Donald Trump. Sadly, his attitude towards refugees is no longer on the very fringes. Increasingly, nations around the world are seeking to curb their intake of refugees. Political leaders see electoral advantage in demonising them. But not everywhere. Today, I travel to a country which has the exact opposite attitude to Donald Trump, a nation that welcomes refugees with open arms and grants them many of the same rights and entitlements as its own citizens. The country is Uganda. The place, a refugee settlement in Nakavali. When you think of East African countries, there's a tendency to focus on the bad things. Military coups, wars, dictatorships and human rights abuses. Today, we're putting aside those things to focus on an unassailably good news story coming out of the region. How Uganda treats its refugees. And there are a few lessons for more prosperous nations in there too. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers. This is the last episode in the current series, but we'll be back next year. So now is the time to keep in touch by signing up to our new email list at changemakerspodcast.org. And as always, this series is supported by Mobilisation Lab. They connect social change campaigners with what works. Check them out at moblab.io. Of course, there have always been refugees. There have always been people fleeing persecution, fleeing for their lives. But it bears reminding where the concept of refugee comes from. In 1948, in the wash-up of the Second World War, in the wash-up of the Holocaust, it was decided that never again should decent nations turn away refugees. And in 1951, 145 nations codified this principle in the UN Convention on Refugees. Those nations are legally obligated to provide safe sanctuary to refugees, not use them as battering rams to score points with voters in swing electorates. For a country as poor as Uganda, it's extraordinary that it's also one of the most generous when it comes to its treatment of refugees. Whereas many rich countries demonise refugees and place them into camps for processing, a process that can last months or years, Uganda is a bit different. I'm not standing in a camp, because here there are no refugee camps. Refugees in Uganda live in settlements, farm their own land that the government has granted them, so they can create self-sustaining communities. Calling it a refugee camp would be something quite different, whereas a, a refugee settlement is, is as I understand, um, really consistent with Ugandans' view that, you know, it's going to welcome refugees and give them as many rights as they can. Naomi Steer is the head of Australia for UNHCR, one of the international organisations providing resources to the Nakavali settlement. So uh, the idea of, of a settlement was really that Ugandans didn't see refugees as something as the other, um, or something to be feared. They've always seen refugees... Um, as being welcomed and being as part of the community. Charlie Yaxley is the spokesperson for UNHCR in Uganda. What's interesting about the settlement model is that there is no border to the settlement. Refugees literally live along Ugandans as their neighbours and their children go to the same schools, they visit the same health clinics and so on. It's a fully integrated 
fully integrated model. This leads to a crucial benefit. The local community gets to use the facilities that are built for the refugees. So as a guiding principle, the humanitarian response looks to allocate around 30% of its resources and capacities towards benefiting local host communities. Take, for instance, when Australia for UNHCR built a modern maternity hospital in the Nakavali settlement. It became the hub for maternity services in the region. Before then, women were giving birth in tents lying on the ground. Once this high-quality facility was built, word quickly got around and refugees and national women from the local community all flocked to use it. That principle plays a crucial role in Uganda's capacity to accept over 1.25 million refugees in a nation of 35 million. Not only is Uganda one of the largest host nations for refugees in the world, it is also one of the most welcoming. Wilson lives in Nakavali, which is a huge refugee settlement, 185 square kilometres in southwest Uganda, four hours by car from the capital. To give you some sense of how immense it is, walking from one end of the settlement to the other would take days. Wilson was originally from Burundi. In 2008, he was in his senior year at high school. Like all teenagers, Wilson faced difficulties at school, but his difficulties were slightly different. But uh, where I was staying, the government could be coming and killing some students and their teachers. Yeah, so while most people worry about their marks or friendships in high school, Wilson's main concern was not being murdered by rebels backed by his own government. So many students were killed, others were even thrown delivers. So that's time also they wanted us to attack me, but I escaped and have to free the country. Did you come on your own or with your family? Uh, I left all the family at home, but because by that time I was taking care of the, my nephews because the father wasn't around, he was in the country, so I came with them in Uganda. The children were seven and nine. Wilson was 16. They walked hundreds of kilometres, first to neighbouring Rwanda. For much of the journey, they didn't have enough food. It was a challenging life because at times you could sleep hungry. Unfortunately, it turned out that it wasn't possible to settle in Rwanda, so they kept going, eventually arriving in Uganda. The journey took a month. When I arrived in Uganda, we came direct to Nakivara refugee settlement, but life wasn't easy. When I came, I had nowhere to sleep. I just got a friend who gave me a small house which was even linking. It was rainy season, and Wilson says every time it rained, the leaks were so bad they had to stand up. The deal with the owner was that Wilson had to go and fetch water from the lake at the bottom of the settlement and haul it back up the hill each day. Eventually, Wilson's life stabilised. He had food, water and shelter. But was that enough? I think, look, for, for, for people anywhere and for refugees, whether they're living in a camp or, or in a settlement, I think, you know, what we all want is our basic needs met and that's the same for refugees living in Nakavali. You know, fundamentally, it's about having food, water, security and shelter provided. Um, and once those needs are met, then you can start thinking about kind of what, what other kind of things you, you want in your life. When I met Wilson, he struck me as a pretty tenacious guy. Having walked hundreds of kilometres looking after two kids, Wilson was now stuck in a settlement camp fetching water. He was alive and out of danger, sure, but he hadn't completed high school. And when he arrived in Nakavali, there weren't any secondary schools. 
There were primary schools for younger kids, but he'd done that. How the hell was he going to make something of his life? We've been engaged in that settlement for um, about eight years, seven years now. And, um, you know, we started off providing um, water and sanitation services. Naomi Steer says most international aid organisations focus on emergency relief, including hers, but for a very good reason. When I talk about what the refugees wanted, you know, we've spoken before about your basic needs, food, water, shelter. And I don't think I've ever been in any refugee situation where people have had enough of any of those things. Um, And I think, you know, it's always very heartbreaking, you know, when I'm talking to children or young people and they're telling me that they're hungry. And that is the reality. Naomi says UNHCR has a principle of listening to the communities they're helping out to make sure they're getting what they need. Of course, it's not that easy. Naomi says when you're focused on the very basics, it's not like you're in a position to divert spare resources elsewhere. But parents in the community desperately wanted the ability to give their kids an education, exactly what Wilson so desperately wanted for himself too. So how the hell did a school get made in the middle of a refugee settlement? We'll be back in a moment. This podcast is supported by Australia for UNHCR. When the gunshots began, I was in school. I'd never heard that sound before. I was so afraid. The teacher shouted to get out and run. That's Sandra, aged 14. She is a refugee from South Sudan. Overnight, I found myself in a crisis. Bullets, petrol bombs, and my family was taken from me. I am afraid now that I will never see my mother and brother again. That's Efas, 13 years old, from Syria. There are now more people fleeing conflict than at any time since World War II. Nobody chooses to be a refugee. What would you pack in your one bag? Where would you run? The UN Refugee Agency needs your support to deliver aid and safeguard the rights of displaced people to live in safety. Be part of the solution. Go to unrefugees.org.au. Welcome back. Rogema Hassel Alin is a teacher in Nakavali. He recounts how the need for a secondary school arose as several talented pupils finished their primary school education. I believe pressure came up as a couple of learners had completed primary seven exams and remained in the community, yet they had performed well. But they remained in the community not because of their wish. It's just because of their incapacitation to go for further, for further studies. And even though they'd done exceptionally well, there was nowhere for them to go. Their education just stalled. Luckily at that time, there had been a large influx of people from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which included many teachers, who volunteered to help set up an ad hoc school for the really talented pupils. So volunteers from the community knocked down a few trees to make an area for a school and started collecting contributions from parents to be able to pay teachers. Look here, we came up with the idea. We had to uh, approach some trees here and we started giving learners porridge here through collecting with, with their parents uh, contributing food and learners kept in school. Bootstrapped from nothing, they were now teaching 60 students. It was a drop in the ocean compared to the need, given there were 25,000 people under the age of 18 in the settlement. But it was what the community needed and the refugees made the first steps in making it happen for themselves. It quickly became clear that they needed outside help to expand. 
the local UNHCR office approached Australia for UNHCR to see if they could swing some resources for the school. The refugees were making some pretty clear requests. Of course we need food, water, shelter, but we also need education for our kids. We also need livelihoods. We, you know, we, we need skills. We want a future. Sometimes things are serendipitous, but, you know, it was the right organisations, the, the right people and the right resources at the right time. Rugema says that because the project came from listening to the needs of the community and was a product of that community, it was clear to international donors that it was worth funding. I believe that is the commitment of the community, which community was seen by UNHCR and other partners as serious, committed to second education, and they came to empower them to achieve this school where it is. They came up with the dream and it was put into practice in 2009, and in 2010 the school kicked off with 197 learners. Crucially, this was not an exercise in charity, which meant the project had more buy-in from the local community. They were very active in the business model because it was understood right from the start that it had to be sustainable, that we could put the funding up front to, to build the structure, to get the computers in there, to provide, you know, several years' salaries to, to the trainers. But after that, it really had to be self-sustaining. So they were very involved in, in driving all of that forward and making sure that it was sustainable, which it is, and it's something that we're all really proud of. Meanwhile, Wilson knew it was his one chance of getting out of his situation. He immediately enrolled to finish his senior years. Can you describe what a usual day would be like for you? Uh, I could just wake up very early at around day six. I had to first prepare the breakfast of the two nephews I was having. After he sent the nephews to their primary school, he would set off to his high school, which was an hour and a half's walk away. Set at around 6.30 so that I reached at school by 8. At the beginning, he remembers being hungry. When we started there, we had no breakfast, we had no lunch, there was no food. We could only just take porridge as our lunch. Being from Burundi, Wilson spoke French, but at the school he was able to learn English, which quickly became his favourite subject. My understanding is, is that you ended up playing leadership roles in the school. How did the school help teach you to, to, to learn how to lead and work with others? Uh, you know, I trust myself and I believe in myself. After knowing English and how to communicate, I saw potential in me that I can lead other students. Wilson became the head prefect. He became a role model to other students at the school. What did you love about school? I loved the school because of the teachers who were there. They are good teachers. There was one teacher who he'll never forget. Madame Goret. She knows how to treat both the refugees and nationals. Madame Goret. He liked her because she was treating both refugees and Ugandan nationals fairly, making sure they got along. Today, Regema is the head teacher at that school. He says Madame Goddard's approach was important because the school's population was both a mix of refugees and local nationals. Of 1,638 learners, at least, we find that uh, 1,232 learners are refugees. I always tell my learners this is an international school where we are associating with over seven nationalities. We have a chance to work, to associate ourselves and serve refugees from Congo, from Burundi, from Rwanda, from Ethiopia, from Somalia, from Eritrea, and name it, and Southern Sudan, 
we feel proud to interact with them when education is unity and surely it has united us for progress. So let's step back a bit here. The Ugandan model for dealing with refugees breaks all the rules of the way refugees are treated across the world. Instead of demonising them, extreme vetting them, banning them, locking them in camps and worse, they just accept them. Uganda ensures refugees have rights alongside the nationals and ensures the nationals themselves get access to the extra services that are required to deal with the refugees. And it's not just in schools. Take, for instance, the local bank, the Moral Brotherhood Saving and Credit Cooperative, or More Bank Sarko for short. It too was started by refugee settlers who realised that microfinance was key to economic development. It was started in 2013 for the following objectives. First, to offer financial-related services to the community like safe custody of funds and loan services. Desiree used to be an academic at a university specialising in banking in the Democratic Republic of Congo. In what must feel like an unbelievable series of events, a few years ago, he found himself fleeing for his life and arrived in Nakavali. Nowadays, he is the manager of Morebank Sako. When it first started, international donors contributed 249 million Ugandan shillings, which is about 68,000 US dollars. Today's result... Moban Sako has 1,274 members, among them 396 nationals. Moban Sako has made accumulative savings of uh, 1,054,000,000 shillings. In other words, it's generating substantial profits from its loans and can fund economic activity well beyond the original float. And, just like the school and the maternity ward, it benefits both refugees and local nationals. So why? In almost every other country, refugees are victimised. Here, they're allowed to set up their own banks. Why? I mean, clearly it works, but why did they adopt this attitude in the first place? A number of the leading politicians, including the president, Museveni, were refugees at some point in their life. And some say that's one of the reasons his leadership understands refugees and is very supportive and welcoming. This leadership permeated downward, leading to a culture of acceptance. And that acceptance means that those in the community have real ongoing commitment to it. It isn't just a temporary camp to escape to. It becomes people's home, where they feel an ongoing connection to building a sustainable community. Take Wilson. After four years, he completed his secondary school education, passed his final exams, and won a scholarship to go to university. When I was in the senior five, I thought of doing theology. I want to be a pastor. But one day I was reading the news about Congo, how refugees were coming, how refugees were suffering. And I saw how social workers were helping them. And also watched the news, how social work is making impact in uh, uh, the lives of the people, how they are changing them, how they are treating them. I said that this is the profession I have to take. I liked it so much. I guess, how long did it take for you to finish that degree? Three years. Three years. And you could have done anything, gone anywhere with a university degree. What did you decide to do? When I finished, I know when I was at university, I had just to learn the skills that after my university, what next? So when I finished my degree, because I had 
uh, finished successfully. I got first class degree with 4.8 GPA. So when I finished, I said, no, I can't sit in, in town in Kampala. Let me go back to Nakivale. I started volunteering with the American Refugee Committee where I got skills. Then I volunteered here in Nakivale. And why did you decide to come to, back to Nakivale? I decided to come back to Nakivale so that I can serve the fellow refugees. What do you think of Uganda's refugee policy? Uh, for sure, a refugee, a Ugandan, in the refugees in Uganda, for sure the policy is well. Because we are allowed to move freely. Like I, I studied in Kampala. You are allowed to do jobs like any other Ugandans. I remember when I applied for the job, I didn't get that. I didn't think that I could get the job as a refugee. But I was so surprised when I got called after applying. So in Uganda, they allow refugees, refugees to the work. They, there's no discrimination. There's free movement. They allow you to do the work. You have equal rights like any nationals. Uganda's approach to refugees is hardly a fairy tale story. But the simple principles that underscore its approach make the world of difference. Instead of treating the refugees as a problem, they're treated as human beings with the same capabilities as the local nationals they're settling alongside. Like in other countries, they don't allow refugees to move freely. They don't allow refugees to work. They don't allow refugees to go in schools like other nationals. I myself am a testimony because I competed with them in the schools. I could travel. I went to school with them. I even competed on the job with them. I got the job. Crucially, although they receive emergency support for the basics, once their lives stabilise, they are expected, just like everyone else, to pay their own way. As a result, through the school, the bank, the hospital, they become economic actors with their own agency. After all, when people are empowered, they know what they want. All that it requires is to listen to them. Listening to, to what refugees want is very much part of the, the framework. In, in fact, I'd say it's really kind of fundamental to not only the framework but any long-term solution um, to support people's lives. I think, uh, again, if you look in Uganda... Uh, Nakavali is just one of a number of settlements there receiving large numbers of, of, of refugees. But it's also to some extent a unique settlement in that people have lived there for many years side by side with Ugandans. They also want to make a contribution um, to Uganda. And, and, and the world. And the only way we can find out how that can be best achieved if we, is if we actually ask them. Perhaps the most fascinating part, and what we in the West can learn from the most, is that the approach of treating people as equals permeates the entire culture. By not demonising refugees, the so-called problem of refugees kind of just dissolves. People don't seem to be xenophobic, right? You know, they don't seem to be <laughs> really concerned about, you know, people being different coming across borders. You know, of course they have the concerns about, you know, resources and, you know, they're a poor country themselves and, you know, how they are going to, to cope. But, you know, a, as a country, it's been very, very generous and very welcoming. 
Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes and join our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. Produced by Carolyn Pegram and Catherine Freeney. Written by Charles Firth. Our researchers are Tessa Sparks, Iona Rennie and Amy Farrell. Sound editing by Molika Bin and Jules Wookera. Our audio producers are Uncanny Valley. Our theme music is by Justin Shave. Our launch partner is Mobilisation Lab. Our sponsoring organisations are Australia for UNHCR, getup.org.au, the Fred Hollows Foundation, Sydney Democracy Network and the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. Listener.